Nearly a decade ago, I found myself filling the hours by listening to podcasts while my husband, Brooks, was training with the U.S. Army. Walking the streets of our Army post, I dreamt of creating something for women that bridged that gap between sermon audio and small talk. It was on the floor of my tiny closet on post that that very dream, the Dream for the Journey Women podcast, came to fruition in June of 2017. And today, by God's grace, Journey Women is now a not-for-profit ministry with the aim of moving women to know and love God more. Our monthly and one-time givers help make our mission possible. If you'd like to support the work that we do, you can make a tax-deductible donation by visiting journeywomen.org forward slash give. Thank you for investing in the work of Journey Women. Welcome to the Journey Women Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Belis. Life's a journey we were never meant to walk alone. We all need friends along the way. On the Journey Women Podcast, we'll chat with mentors about gracefully navigating the seasons and challenges we face on our journeys to glorify God. On today's episode of the Journey Women Podcast, I'm chatting with my friends, Laura Wiffler and Emily Jensen about perfectionism. If you know Laura and Emily of the Risen Motherhood podcast, it is no surprise that this conversation really helped me apply the realities of the gospel to my performance-oriented, perfectionistic self. So you'll know them better. Emily Jensen and Laura Wiffler are the co-founders of the Risen Motherhood ministry and the co-hosts of the weekly podcast. As sister-in-laws, Emily and Laura both live in central Iowa with their families. Their first co-written book, Risen Motherhood releases September 3rd, and it's available anywhere books are sold. We highly recommend checking it out. Laura and Emily, welcome back to the Journey Women podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having us. This is like the best ever to get to be on your show again. Yeah, we are so excited. It's like sitting down with a good friend and just having... This is like a real conversation that we would have with you, Hunter. This is awesome. I like worried that I'm going to say something I shouldn't say because I'm too comfortable with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we know I will, but don't worry. Editing helps. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited to get to have you guys on. There's so much going on right now. Y'all are super busy with the upcoming launch of the Risen Motherhood book, which is launching when? In a couple weeks, I'm guessing, from when this airs. Yeah, September 3rd. So it's a, it's a Tuesday in the middle of the week. It'll be a good day. I'm so excited. I had an opportunity just to read through the book and I immediately texted you, voxed you and said, this is so good. I am so proud of y'all. I cannot believe uh, the final product. Really, I'm astounded. And it's just, it's really exciting to get to have um, just something that I want to give to my friends. And that is also going to be supporting my friends who wrote it. So thank you so much for all the time, energy and effort that you poured into just uh, really proclaiming the truths of the gospel and applying that richness to the season of motherhood. It's such a blessing to me. And I know it's going to be a blessing to all the listeners. Definitely recommend checking that out and grabbing a copy um, for a baby shower or for yourself or for a friend. It's it's really, really encouraging. You guys did a wonderful job. Oh man, that is like the highest encouragement just yeah. coming from someone who uh, knows us and has kind of followed along with us and walked with us and just that we totally respect and admire your mm-hmm. your theological grounding as well. So that's just a really, really encouraging high affirmation. Thank you. I was looking at it and I was like, man, I knew these girls could write, but they can write. I was like, this is good. <laughs> good stuff. So oh, that's awesome. that's kind. yeah. And as I was reading through, I just I'm constantly astounded at y'all's skill of applying the gospel to 
different areas of life. I've told Laura this before, but it's just been a ministry to me as a friend because that's something that I really, when I was a young woman early in my 20s, I really wanted to grow in that. Like I knew how to explain to you, you know, the bridge illustration or the spiritual laws and I could like spout those off, but I didn't really know how the truths of the gospel applied to like every situation in life. And so it's just been a real treat to get to hear you expound upon that in your podcast and to read that in the book. And I hope that we'll be able to do that today. I feel like this is just going to be a counseling session for me as we're chatting about perfectionism, because it's something that I really struggle with if you can't tell. It's it's always really disheartening to me when people are like, I can totally tell you're like the type one on the Enneagram, right, Hunter? I'm like, yes. Well, it's so interesting because I'm also a type one, but if you were to ask me, hey, are you a perfectionist by kind of the original way that I think most of us think of how we would define the term, like I would probably actually say, oh no, I'm not a perfectionist, but I've been thinking about this topic more. And as I process a lot of these things, I'm like, oh my goodness, I actually am a perfectionist. Like, I think there's a little (laughs) bit of it in all of us, right? I think a lot of people are aware of the fact that they wrestle with this pressure just to get it all right. But like you said, I think a lot of people are like, no, I don't identify with perfectionism at all. But where have you guys seen perfectionism rear its head in your own lives? And where might others see it in theirs, even if they don't think like, man, I'm, I actually wrestle with perfectionism. Yeah. Well, I'll just keep kind of keep going since I was hinting towards it there earlier. I think that when I define perfectionism by like, Oh, not a hair is out of place or, you know, all my dishes Mm -hmm. are done or everything's perfect. I, I definitely don't necessarily see myself there. But when I think about perfectionism as the desire to kind of always be enough or do enough or perform enough, this desire to do really well in order to achieve my own value or my own worth that pretty much in every stretch of the word, like I am acting like a perfectionist because I'm falling into that trap all the time. And I know that I myself personally can really tend to fall into being performance-based and finding that value in the things that I do, how much I get done. And, you know, I'll see my day as a success or as a failure as whether or not I finish my to-do list or have a clean email inbox. And so I think that like, I definitely really struggle with just this idea that like there is a way that I can attain value through my own efforts and and I'm doing it kind of, I'm bouncing back and forth in it all throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes. How about you, Emily? Yeah. I mean, I totally concur with Laura. I'm just like the little Enneagram seven, just floating around out here with two ones right now. Um, so call her Ariel. Oh yeah. <laughs> I wish I had a little bit more of that in my life. I'm not going to lie. Supposedly, when we are functioning in health, we tend towards a seven, though. So I don't know. You are goals. Oh, well, thank you. Um, Okay, Ariel loves gold. Okay, (laughs) back on track. So I am naturally like probably no surprise wouldn't consider myself a perfectionist by this traditional definition. And I think like Laura, you know, I don't have these crazy standards. I shouldn't say crazy high standards for the way every detail is in life. So, you know, I can have wrinkles in my bed sheets and Hey, the bed can even like not be made and I'm totally fine. That's too far. That's too far. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Like, the day doesn't begin until the ba- bed is made. At least that's yeah, what I was taught. That I'm married to an Enneagram one who will make the bed if I do not make the bed every day. So by that definition, I'm not a perfectionist, but as I thought about Hey, internally, what are some areas like Laura was was saying that I struggle with not feeling like I'm doing enough or that I am the right type of person? Uh, One would be my mood. So I've just noticed that I deem cheerfulness and being laid back as like the best way 
a person can be. And so then when I have emotions that are sad or uncomfortable, or I'm feeling even like God given emotions that aren't bad, but they um, aren't what I think cheerfulness should look like. I will really get into kind of the self-shaming and feeling like, well, that's not this perfect cheerfulness. So I'm not allowed to feel that. Um, another way that um, I've struggled with this is in my reputation. Mm-hmm. So I can feel very perfectionist about, I don't want to have a spot or a blemish or a word that people can speak against me, which logically like that's crazy. Like even holiness offends people, but I have this desire to be seen as perfectly smart or perfectly has it together and is polished in kind of every area of Christian life. And so that can influence or the way that I posture myself, even on social media or like what I share and can become too much a part of my thought life. And finally, I was just thinking about like, I can be a perfectionist about progress. And so I'm actually not very competitive. And I've always thought it was really interesting. Like, why do I not mind just like sitting on the sideline or, you know, giving up instead of jumping in and pushing hard. And some of it is my personality, but some of it is, I think, because if I can't perfectly execute something and like guarantee that I will succeed and that I will win, I'd rather just laugh about it and pull myself out and try not to just, I'll try not, I'll, I'd rather just pull myself out and not try at all so that I don't have to look foolish. So even Mm -hmm. like that disengagement or kind of like having this disgust with my lack of progress to me can really be a byproduct of perfectionism. I identify with all of those. So (laughs) I knew I was going to be ministered to in the closet today. Thank you for just the solidarity in and of itself. But how do the messages that we receive from secular culture actually perpetuate these thoughts and ideas that you just expounded upon? Yeah, it was interesting to think about this in terms of like, you know, secular culture and church culture. So Culture is also funny because it sends us mixed messages. <laughs> Always mixed. There's often like multiple things layering together that don't act. Isn't that stressful? Yes. Yeah. So we kind of like broke it down into these three things. Like message one is you are perfect when you blank and then just insert that standard or that formula, right? Like right. you're perfect when you wear a size two or you have a certain education mm. or you live up to these societal societal ideals. And so it's kind of typical perfectionism as mm-hmm. about it. And even though I think we're moving away from this, like it still is very prevalent in whatever pocket you exist in that there's standards. Um, but then to push right back against that is another message. Um, you're perfect just the way you are, right? Like People mean well with this. And I think this is a beginning to try to counteract some of the problems with that first message, because deep down we know like, oh, there's a lot of subjective things in life and none of us Mm -hmm. are going to attain that. Um, But unfortunately, like this message then goes too far the other direction and it often like disregards God's design or it doesn't acknowledge that there could be anything bad or unholy in us. And it assumes that like every thought I have, desire, intention is meant to be accepted and glorified. So this is kind of like that moral relativism piece. Um, And then I think another message we get that, of course, again, doesn't resonate with all of these is you don't need to be perfect. Um, So like if the first message is embracing perfectionism and the second one is internally embrace who you are as perfect, this is kind of that outright rejection of the concept of perfection. It's it's just like, hey, let's just forget it. Like I'm bitter. (laughs) I can't do this. 
this. Um, no one can do it. And so let's all be okay with the mess that we are. So that's kind of like how we were thinking about culture, but this really, I think goes into Christian culture as well. Totally. When we're in our, our churches and we're thinking like, okay, be perfect. Like your heavenly father is perfect, which I think we'll get into later in the show, but effectively in a church body, this can feel like be sinless. Like be if you're, especially if you're a leader, like you're on a pedestal, you cannot ever stumble. You cannot ever be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. You can't ever reveal something that's going on in your heart or just kind of the, the normal people in the church sometimes feel like they can't share their struggles. And finally, there's this message in the church that's like, be perfect. Like our church community defines perfection, you know, be exactly like everyone else here and fit in or else. So there's a lot that we could go into, but those were, we felt like those were just like some categories for messaging mm-hmm. culture sense. Life is crazy sometimes, and finding time to sit down and read the Bible can be difficult. That is why I love Dwell. When I can't find time to read the Bible, I can listen to it. The voices reading the Bible are soothing. They're not your normal narrators. Plus, you can choose calming background music and adjust the pace of the narrator's voice to get things just right. Dwell's newest release is called Dwell Daily, a fresh, thoughtfully crafted devotional that immerses you in the Word, allowing you to pray it, meditate on it, and so much more. If you're looking to deepen your engagement with the Bible this year, Dwell Daily is worth checking out. I cannot recommend Dwell enough to help you orient your mind to the life-giving Word of God throughout your day. Go to dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen to receive your 25% discount today. Again, that's dwellbible.com forward slash journeywomen for your 25% discount to subscribe and spend time in God's Word. I definitely experience both of those, and it's a real struggle for me. And I hope that people just feel that solidarity because uh, it's something that I'm constantly bringing before the Lord and asking Him uh, just to give me eyes to see things accurately and to see things through the lens of the gospel. So can you guys help me out there? Like, how does the gospel redeem our perfectionism and how does the reality of that transform our imperfect work? Yeah, this is a great question. I think the thing to recognize here is that it's not always bad to desire perfection. I think we have this bad rap that we give perfection, but it really just depends on how you define it. And I think maybe a better way of defining it is thinking about pursuing excellence and just like understanding that one of our goals as believers on earth is to transform more and more into Christ likeness, recognizing that we still have limitations. Mm. And so it's so interesting to look back at the at creation, at the garden, as we think through kind of the four parts of the gospel. Um, actually, Nancy Guthrie has a really neat framework for thinking about God's original creation in Eden. She, she talks a lot about how Eden isn't actually perfect. It has this potential to be perfect. And I think that that mm. really helps us think about the state of creation, because a lot of times we think of Eden as being perfect. But the fact is that pre-fall, like, yes, humans hadn't sinned, but there was still this, this presence for, of evil mm. with Satan in the garden. There was still this potential for sin to happen. And so we know that in creation, you know, humans were designed in God's likeness to bear his image, but they weren't necessarily designed to be perfect in the same way that God is. You know, Matthew 5 tells us our heavenly father is perfect. Psalms 18 tells us that God's ways are perfect. It's, it's not the same for humans. And so 
we're supposed to be good and sinless images of God, but we're not, we don't have all perfect wisdom, all perfect knowledge. So, you know, then we can kind of look at the fall and see that Eve desired that. She desired to not just be like God, but also to be God herself. She wanted exactly what he had. And there was a sense in her of discontent or emptiness and lack. And that's the same thing that we feel whenever we're moving towards perfectionism, we're fighting for whatever we feel like we're missing or whatever we feel like we don't have this absence of perfection. Like we're doing the same thing that Eve did in the garden when the serpent suggested that, hey, you need something a little bit more for the perfect life. And Eve listened, she believed, and she ate. But the thing is, instead of further delight, instead of more perfection, in fact, it was actually a total disaster. And this is where we see that mankind's relationship with God was totally severed. And I think we've talked a little bit about some of these wrong ways that we think about perfectionism, you know, even desiring control or power. We never want to fail. We we want to be right. We want our environment to kind of all be in order. Um, but we see that something is really neat to look at is, is if we zoom forward to consummation, which I know we're going to kind of keep talking through the gospel right now, but we see that actually God is going to make an Eden that is perfect. And we have this Eden 2.0 in effect where things actually will be perfect. And so I think that that shows us too, that our, our desire for perfection isn't totally wrong. Like we at the very beginning. So I'll let Emily kind of keep going with redemption. I feel like there's so much goodness in here. We could talk forever. I know. Please do. (laughs) I think going back to this question, like what Laura said is who or what in Eden was perfect. And the only answer to that is God himself, the triune God. And so then when we're looking at who is going to restore our relationship with God, it makes sense that the only answer to that is Jesus the only perfect person who ever lived because he was the God man. Um, And I love looking throughout the New Testament and seeing all these verses that tell us, you know, 1 Peter 2.22, Jesus was without sin. 1 Peter 1.19, he was a perfect sacrifice. He was a lamb without blemish or spot. I'll just clip through a bunch more. He was the perfect purification for our sins. He's the perfect way to the Father. He walks in perfect love. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. So we could go on and on and on, right? Jesus is the perfect son and friend and employee and servant and party goer (laughs) and healer and teacher. So we look to him as really the only example of a human who lived a perfect life. And that's because of his divine nature. And so to dig into what we really want to know for this conversation is like, well, but how does Jesus redeem our perfectionism? Uh, We find out in Jude 1.24 that he presents us as he is blameless and perfect before the throne. And so this means that when we repent and we turn from our desire to be God, for our desire to have more than, you know, what God has given to us, when we stop trusting from our, in ourselves and we trust in Jesus, all the perfect righteousness that he is by grace through faith is transferred onto us so that we can then stand before the throne in light of Christ's perfection. And I think it's important to note that by that, we don't mean we literally become perfect or we become like a deity or something. That's not what Christianity teaches, but it kind of is this picture that in the cosmic court of law, so to speak figuratively, in God's justice system, our record is perfectly spotless and we take on the righteousness of Christ. And so what that means is that from redemption, 
we get to now rest in his perfection. It's Jesus who keeps us. He presents us. So it's not on our effort or our perfect self-control or our detail orientation or our good behavior, or how we're ma- manipulating our situations. It's all on him. And we also get to then live those therefores in scripture, right? The things that's like, here's the gospel. Therefore, we look to Jesus. We don't model after our culture's idea of the perfect life or the church's, you know, um, external, biblically kind of external rules of, of what the perfect life is. We do what Jesus says, and we are going to live for what he says is good and strive for that throughout our lives. Mm, Yes. I love that. I love just this picture of moving out of the gospel, like sitting in the gospel and resting in the gospel, as you mentioned, and then moving forward and working from a place of rest. But so often as I'm going about this work, I find myself working for rest as opposed to resting in what Christ has done. So what do y'all do when you find yourselves there, when you're resting in your performance or striving from a place of wanting to get it all right, as opposed to resting in what Christ has done and knowing that you have been made perfect because of his finished work? Yeah, this is such a great question, something I fall into all the time. And I think that the biggest thing is doing exactly what you said, like flipping the narrative, right? Like we we're trying to rest, but we're doing that on our own volition or on our own power. And I think for me, I'll start to notice myself, uh, failing in this area or resting in my own performance when suddenly I feel like, Oh, things are starting to crumble or I'm starting to have more fear or the doubts are coming faster. I'm not sleeping well. I have a lot of worry or maybe even some anxiety at night. And, you know, I think a lot of Paul in first Corinthians too, when he's talking to the church in Corinth and he talks about how he, d- he doesn't come with this lofty speech or this wisdom. He comes and he was weak and he was fearful and he was trembling. But his goal was simply and purely to just share Jesus Christ crucified. And this was this was not for his own self to be glorified. This was for the Corinthians so that they wouldn't think Paul was amazing, but that they would know God and his power and the spirit. And their faith wouldn't necessarily be in Paul or wouldn't be in Paul at all, but in in Christ. And I think when I step back and I think deeply about, Hey, what am I worried about? Or what, why am I trying to be performance based and living in that way right now? I realize that I'm depending on my own effort for my own self glory. And I'm trying to do it so that I look good in front of others. or I reach some standard that I believe will be make, make me feel valuable that will help mm-hmm. me sleep better at night. And so I think that first thing to do, and, and for me, this kind of sounds silly maybe, but is to actually take intentional physical rest. So being someone who is performance-based, the biggest thing that I can do to remind my heart of what my mind knows is to stop and sit on the couch or to go on a walk or to play with my kids and just to take a moment to remember I am not a deity. I am not the answer to everyone's problems. And this has been a huge shift in my thinking, making that physical act of, of resting and I, and taking a full Sabbath on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. Um, that was something that I, for many, many years, never valued, never really took, never made a priority. Uh, but when I started realizing how performance-based I really am, that was one of the first things that I implemented. And honestly, one of the best things for my heart to say no to perfectionism. And so if there is someone struggling with that right now, I mean, that is like my best advice, particularly Mm -hmm. 
people who are more kind of driven or type A personality. Um, I think of Psalms 127 when, when the Lord is saying, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. And that has been just such a comfort for me as I remind myself of what does what's the life that God calls me to. It's not a life of anxious toil and striving for perfection. It's a life of rest and sleep in him because I trust and rest in him. I'm smiling because I'm remembering a boxing conversation that we shared. I was like pulling my kids on my bicycle in the bike trailer, super stressed out. <laughs> and Laura, you just basically laid it down for me in that way. And you guys have been really a picture of that for me. And just, I know that Hannah Anderson has been such a gift to us both in, I think she uses the language of embracing your God-given limitations and that being like walking forward in humility. And that's definitely a journey that I am still on to this day. And I think it changes and it shifts in every season. Like with every kid, I've just, I see my own propensity, you know, just like you said, to play a little G God and um, instead just to uh, open up my hands and to say, God, you are God alone. And, and I want to even reflect that in the way in which I embrace the limitations that you have graciously uh, gifted to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does finding our identity in Christ and knowing who we are because of what he's done to us and for us actually enable us to move forward and reflect his perfect love to others? Yeah. I mean, just to start kind of at this high level, I think it's the self-focus versus a Christ focus. And so, When we haven't yet fully uh, believed or trusted in this reality that Christ is perfect on our behalf, we're going to be just obsessed and worried about making ourselves perfect. And so that eats up a lot of time and energy and worry and resources when that question is not settled in Christ, because we're going to be doing everything in our power to kind of settle that question, whether that's aesthetically, I need to look a certain way. My task list needs to look a certain way. I need to, again, appear or have things ordered according to the way I want my environment to be controlled. Like we all have, I think, lived in that striving at one point or another, and we know that it's exhausting. And when we are exhausted by that, it's very difficult then to be Christ focused and Mm -hmm. then even more so, you know, others focused. So whenever that question gets settled for us, and we really know and believe that he has transferred that righteousness and that goodness to us that we stand in that before the throne, it really frees up that time and energy and resources to serve our master Mm -hmm. and to say, no, all of that can now be diverted to loving others, to loving God, to doing the tangible good works that he's put in front of me. And so it's just like a really neat shift that can happen in our thinking. Mm -hmm. And just to build off what you're saying there, Emily, I think like I realize that when I am rooted in Christ and my identity is found and rested in him, that I am much more predictable in life. Because like you're saying, I love that conversation about um, it takes so much of your time. It takes so much mental energy whenever you're striving for other things. But when we are rooted in Christ, like I think there's this element of knowing that I don't have to be as affected by others' mistakes. I don't have to be sad when they sin. Like I can expect, I mean, it can make me sad. I don't want to say that, but this idea that 
when I'm trusting in myself, my heart is much more unpredictable. It's much more volatile, not only for those around me and then the mm. way that I respond to them, but like, I don't even know how I'm going to respond to something. And it's kind of an awful place to live. And it's kind of an awful place for my family and those around me, because I think that everybody else's sin and attitudes and the things that they're dealing with affect me a lot more. And I'm already really struggling because I find that you know, I'm placing my, my pride, um, in wanting to be the best, or I'm placing my, my identity in my fear, telling me that I'm the worst. And my heart is just kind of going through this whiplash. And so I think that when we root our identity in Christ, our responses become much more steady because our hearts are not wandering through all these unfulfilled desires or these hopes for our own efforts and perfection. And so that's when we can truly respond in kindness, or we can truly be patient when others fail us, or we can really trust God, even when we're not sure how things are going to be sorted out, we can display imperfectly, not perfectly, Jesus's perfect love to others. Well, that just brings us back to the verse that we were talking about, because you said, you know, imperfectly, we're doing this. And we all know that. But then we see things like we see in Matthew 5, when Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, like, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So what do you think he meant by that? <laughs> this is such a good question. I yeah. feel like this is classic, like, if you just take a verse out and, you know, take it at face value without really looking at the context, we can begin to have maybe some wrong thinking about, um, what a verse means. So if we dig into this, of course, there's always like multi-level interpretations and a lot of different nuggets of truth and any verse we're looking at, but at a level, this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And this verse is framed primarily, I think, to reveal what we're not. If Jesus uh, was, you know, calling out, asking, hey, is anybody humble? Anybody mournful, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers? <laughs> so it's kind of like the Ten Commandments, right? Where there's some boxes, somebody sitting there checking at the beginning. They're like, okay, yeah, mm -hmm. I never murdered anyone. You know, I've never done this other thing. And, but there is also this other aspect of it that, you know, you can't perfectly fulfill. Oh, thou shall have no other gods before me. Well, mm -hmm. I guess sometimes I do worship other things. So the Sermon on the Mount takes us to that deep level and says, nope, it's not enough to just check those superficial boxes. We're actually not able to inherit the kingdom of God because of our lust and our desire for control and our hate that's in our hearts and all these things that are deep, deep down. So at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when we're, or at least towards the end, or this pause point here, we the hearers should be left wondering, how are they ever going to get into heaven? And Jesus kind of gives this mic drop statement by effectively saying, look, if this isn't enough evidence, how about this? You have to be perfect like God. And everybody at that point is like, you know, you're leveled oh, out. Yes. Everyone at that point, everyone is disqualified. And I think it leaves the hearer ready to know why they need Jesus, the perfect man who is standing there in front of them, perfect like God. What's his role in all of this? I think it's designed to have us ask that question. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting too, because just before in Matthew five, Jesus is talking and he basically says, Hey, I'm not going to abolish the law. I'm going to fulfill it. And so he is teeing it up to say that I am the perfect one that is going to live on your behalf that will fulfill and measure up to God's perfect standards in your place. And so Jesus isn't asking us to be perfect. He knows full well that we cannot be perfect. 
But in him, we are made righteous before a perfectly holy God. And I think it's interesting to think about what righteousness is. It's this quality of being morally right, free from all sin and guilt. It's it's perfection. And so it's really quite amazing when you think about Jesus being willing to kind of die in our place so that we can be next to God and like we can be perfect as our Father is perfect. And it's really a beautiful, beautiful calling when you understand what that passage means. Right. And we were uh, continuing to look in Matthew after he gets through kind of this long sermon, all of a sudden there starts to be these examples of people who were healed in faith. There's like a ton of stories back to back to back. And so the gospel picks up with this picture of a leper who wants to be made clean, right? This is like radical in Jewish culture, impossible that a leper is going to, who's kind of cut off kind of from God's people in a sense. And he is unclean. He's Mm -hmm. whatever the definition of like imperfect is, is it. And Jesus, you know, makes the impossible possible. He reaches out to him and makes him clean. So it's just neat that after the Sermon on the Mount, when our hearts may be feeling despairing after listening to his teachings on lust and divorce and, you know, all these things that we are not, that then we see a blind man and a leper and, you know, all these different people who have no ability to be healed and transformed and made right on their own, you know, receive that by faith through Jesus. It's just a really neat transition. Mm, It stirs my affection for him. I am led to worship. And this is why it's so important. And this is why I long so greatly to be able to apply these truths to my everyday life, which is why so much of this conversation is revolving around the concept of how we apply the reality of redemption to our everyday lives. So how can we gain a greater ability to see God and our own lives through the framework of the gospel? And how can we like filter what we're experiencing in our everyday lives and in our world, in the world around us through the gospel? Mm, Yeah, this is a great question. And basically what the entire ministry of prison motherhood is built upon, (laughs) because we had these same questions. We were asking these same things about our faith. And we definitely talk about this in the book, but the one way that I know a lot of people will probably know us for that we tend to do it is through walking through these kind of larger four points of the gospel that you find within the meta narrative of scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so there are lots of ways to make this work. We are not the inventors of this either. I always feel like we need to give that disclaimer. We're not that smart. We did not invent this. This is wiser (laughs) people that have gone before us have probably built upon these concepts as well, but we tend to use this as a guide for our thinking. And it's so great to take a topic like perfectionism of what we've done here. And you can walk through these four parts. So creation, you know, what, what was God's design? How was this planned originally when there wasn't sin that was present or there wasn't brokenness involved? And then you work through the fall, you know, how does sin and brokenness impact whatever you're facing? What are the heart motivations when we're not worshiping God? What are the things that are outside my control? The things that sin has broken in my environment, it may not be sin in your own heart, but there may be things affecting the way things go that are are in the outside world and in culture. 
the next thing is to look at redemption. You know, how does Jesus restore relationship with him and how does that impact the way that we can act and respond in the situation? And so much of life goes back to the heart. And I think that's so important to remember that it's not about controlling your outside circumstances. I think anyone who's lived longer than, you know, a few years knows, <laughs> hey, you don't control your outside circumstances. Word. It's always going to go differently than you think, but you can control your heart and you can control the way that you respond to things. And then lastly, we think through consummation. So this is when Christ returns, when he makes the new heavens and the new earth, you know, what, what happens then? And how mm-hmm. is this a, a hope for me? How can I cling to this? How can I look at the coming future and God's big, big story that he is writing that I play a part of? And how does that change the way that I can live with hope in the situation today? And so those four facets can help us process through the world. It's not a formula. We, we wouldn't want anyone to totally think like, I got it in the bag. If I just walk through these questions, a lot of times we're left with even more questions, but that is one nice way to think about uh, the world that we live in and some of the unique situations that we all face. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too, as we've worked through this, you know, Laura and I have been now processing things through this lens for years yeah. and have literally probably done it, you know, hundreds of times, um, different topics. And, We've also learned that as simple as this is on a level, there is also mystery and complexity to it. So I think we would also caution people as they hear this formula and there's this excitement that wells up in your heart like, oh, I got this. I'm going to be able to kind of figure things out that uh, a lot of this interpretation relies on a solid overarching understanding of scripture. Um, And the less that somebody really knows their Bible, the greater the chance is that there's going to be interpretation errors, or it's just really hard to string these pieces together. So we would always encourage like, this is done alongside long-term study of scripture. I think additionally, uh, we always have to be careful because we can make the Bible say whatever we want. Uh, So this is a framework, but it's not an excuse to take things out of context. So for example, this is going to be silly, but looking at God's design, oh, well, God put Adam and Eve in a garden. Therefore, like it's against his design if you live in a city and we should all strive to live on a farm and be in a garden. It's like, well, yeah, we have to look at that in the context of the whole scripture. Like, what is that? So we just always want to be aware that that is uh, an issue. And just like Laura said, that it's not a formula. The point of this is not that oh, we're going to process our problem through and like spit out the answer on the other side so that I don't have to depend on God anymore. Look, I got my answer. The whole process is meant to point our hearts to a deeper dependence on Christ, to a greater reliance on Him. And sometimes there isn't a super clear cookie cutter outcome. It's actually just that we need to, again, rely on God more and continue to ask Him for wisdom. So I guess we would just kind of pad all that, that nice four point gospel with this reality that we never outgrow needing to depend on God and ask for wisdom and study the word. I am always trying to just do things on my own and in my own strength. And I I just, I absolutely hate that. I long to be rid of that. Mm. But even in like preaching the gospel and preaching the gospel to myself, I can get perfectionistic. I think just remembering that the goal is worship, that the goal is intimacy, that the goal is joy in Jesus. And so that helps me to remember to utilize even like a method like that, where you're looking at how to uh, apply the realities and the richness of the gospel to your everyday life. But to do that with the aim and the goal of really knowing God and loving him and 
that's always where I have to hang out, even though that's been such a help to me in growing in my ability to connect it to everyday moments, because I did find that like, I knew the truth of the scripture, but then it was hard for me to apply it to everyday life. And that's something that I've mentioned you guys are so good at that you guys have been such a help to me. And I know there's so many questions that listeners have, myself included, just about what that looks like. Do you have any other tips, just kind of encouragements, exhortations about what it looks like to grow in our ability to connect the gospel to these everyday moments in which we find ourselves wanting to perform? Yeah. I mean, the ability to learn about the gospel is everywhere. You know, we're every moment that you breathe on this earth, I feel like is a chance to learn about how to apply the gospel. And so we think of it as coming from both through reading God's word, his inspired word that is living and active, but also through kind of living through this book of life, you know, and they go hand in hand. We're embodied beings on this earth. We live here and this is, this is the reality and the time and context that God has set us in. But then we also have his word that is completely timeless. And it's this an overarching authority authority in our lives. And, but we have to look at how those things flow together. And so of course, the first thing we would always suggest is to read and study the word. This is what Emily was just talking about is get in your Bible, read it over and over again. There are a million different ways to study God's word. There are Hunter, you have podcasts, tons of shows on that. So go in Hunter's archives and look, and you will find lots of ways to study God's word. Um, and that is, that is like the number one place to start, but then also thinking through, okay, I have a situation in front of me. I have this moment where I'm impatient and frustrated right now, or I am doubting God's promises, or I have some road rage. Those are just great (laughs) moments to just stop and pause and remember the truth of the gospel and walk yourself even through maybe those four parts of the gospel. So, so much I think of learning to apply the gospel is pausing and taking taking a moment to say, okay, what is this? It's, it's not something that I think for Emily and myself, we can kind of say, oh, it's a little more natural. I mean, we've had however many years of practice, but particularly if this is a new skill set for you, we would just encourage you to slow down and take a moment or write yours down in a journal and, yeah. and kind of walk through some things because it's not just going to like click mm-hmm. all of a sudden and you're going to have the right answer. In fact, if you're whipping it from the hip, it's probably <laughs> going to be wrong, you know? And, yeah. so, and always remember to start with the heart. So I'm going to let Emily go. Oh yeah. This share is all, more stuff. Yeah, all super good. Um, so another thing we would just encourage is conversation with other people. So it's not ever good for us to interpret the Bible and try to apply it to our lives isolated apart from community. Uh, we of course loved your show with Susan Hunt about the local Woo-woo. church. So uh, go listen to that. Be a part of the local church and love the church. Um, the whole series on the church. Oh yeah, the whole series. Go hear yes. the whole series. <laughs> Thank um, you, friend. And, yeah, apply the gospel and get input from other people. I think sometimes people that are wiser or they're mm-hmm. just uh, more objective can look at our lives and ask, help us see how the gospel may apply. Um, of course, pray. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. ask God. We have the Holy Spirit living inside Mm -hmm. of us if we are followers of Christ, which means He's there. He wants to help us discern His Word and apply it to our lives. Sing. Like, find songs that have the gospel woven right in. I mean, Laura and I would both say, like, we cannot tell you how big of an impact, especially on days when, like, I cannot think about anything. My Mm -hmm. brain is complete mush. I'm having a terrible day. I am overwhelmed, but my spirit, I can sing a song yeah. with God. I can sing a hymn with gospel. Yes. And that can minister the gospel to us. Um, or play it if you can't even play bring yourself it. to sing it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, that can make a huge impact. And, 
you know, memorizing the word, I think mm-hmm. can also help on those days when I can't draw to mind anything. I can't think critically, but sometimes the Holy Spirit will bring a verse that we've hidden in our heart Mm -hmm. up to the surface and will remind us of a truth that brings comfort or helps us know how to act in a situation where we want to do the therefores and we don't know what to do. So those are Mm. just a few touch points for learning to apply the gospel. That's super helpful. I mean, I feel like you guys have already answered it, but do you have any other resources that you'd recommend as somebody who wants to grow in this area? Oh, yes, of course we do. (laughs) (laughs) We love resources. Um, Probably our tops that we would recommend. I mean, there are many, 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 but we love Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderselt. And then, man, I need to read that. I haven't even read that, guys. Read it, friend. Um, Okay. Another one would be A Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. Yes. And then, is this a shameful plug, a shameless plug? I mean, Risen Mother shameful. book. <laughs> I am Absolutely. Hoping they already got it. But seriously, I mean, uh, let me just expound upon this. Like, I think a lot of the listeners are not in a season of motherhood. And so they're like, eh, this doesn't apply. Um, but the book and then also some of the shows that you've done, uh, even if you're not a mother, I really don't know of very many ministries that are uh, honing in on the gospel in this way. And so it's just really, it's a real help if you're looking to grow in your ability to apply the gospel to your everyday life. I I promise you that like the principles will apply even if like the practicals don't apply. So go check it out for sure. Okay, well, you guys have both been guests on the show in the past, and so I thought I'd switch it up for those of you who have been on multiple times, and I'm so excited to hear this. Um, you know, looking back at your 25-year-old self, our, our like age demographic is like 22 to 34, so looking back at your 25-year-old self, what's one piece of advice that you would just sit across the table if you're having coffee with her? What's one piece of advice you would offer? Oh, man, I would tell... Let's see. That was eight years ago. I realized the first time I typed it like seven years, I'm like, I didn't count right. I'm actually older than that. Um, You lose track of your age at like 30. I know. I have no (laughs) idea. I'm 30 plus. It's so true. 30 plus. (laughs) Um, So I would tell Emily eight years ago, do what God has given you to do today with faithfulness and stop worrying so much about how you're going to get to where you think he might be taking you. I think that uh, in that season, I was about to have my first child, and there were some seeds in my heart already, desires to do some of the things that I actually get to do today with Risen Motherhood or writing or speaking. And I think I kind of felt like, oh, you know, I don't really see anything that big happening or that exciting happening. And I didn't realize, like, God was working out a lot of those things, but guess what? There was going to be a lot of years of plotting and being quiet and just Bible study on my own and things I was doing in my church and faithfully raising little children, whatever that looked like. Um, So I would just encourage her to, not that I didn't have, I, I shouldn't have any dreams, but just to be way more focused on just trust God and be faithful with what he's given you to do today. He is doing a work and he has every right to take me wherever he wants to go at whatever timing that is. And what's neat is like in my thirties now, I feel way more comfortable with that concept Mm -hmm. than I did in my twenties. And I think it's just been one of the gifts of this season of life is uh, there's a lot of things I don't feel relaxed about, but I do feel more relaxed with this idea of like, I don't know where God Mm -hmm. is taking me what does he put before me today? And so it's just a lesson mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. to learn. 
That's encouraging. What about you, Laura? Yeah, well, I can just 100% echo everything that Emily said. I definitely needed to probably hear that when I was 25 and was going through many of the same things. Um, But in a desire to maybe say something a little bit different, I think that what I would want to tell myself is just that God is going to show up in hard things for you. And there are going to be some dark days ahead, Mm. difficult decisions, some Mm. things that you're not going to know what to do. You're not going to know where God is. You're not going to understand why he's putting you through that, or maybe why he feels even absent from you for a time. But just to remember that God is always faithful and he is going to provide the people, the resources, the skill sets, and and most of all, Mm. just the grace that you need for every single moment. And I think that I would want to remind myself sometimes that sometimes the, the shadows are the places that I think God shines the brightest and you only see that looking back. Um, And there's always grace that awaits you. You can't see it yet. You're afraid of it, but that grace will be there. It will meet you at the perfect time. And just remember that God holds tighter to you than you could ever hold to him. Mm, He will hold you fast. Favorite him. (laughs) That's potent coming from you. And I know Emily echoes that as well. So that means a lot, knowing your story. uh, And I would just encourage people if they haven't, you know, just learn from you in that capacity that uh, you can, you can get a little bit on Instagram and it it will, it will bless you uh, to know the context from what you're speaking. So guys, it's been a joy. We're not done yet, but I want to hear what is one thing that you're looking forward to in your journey with Jesus. And I kind of think I know what you're going to say, but maybe not. Okay. You'll have to tell me if this is what you thought, but Uh, I think for me, I have been loving growing older and I think I was thinking, oh, I'm going to mourn when I'm out of my twenties. That's your prime years. It's like the whole world is in front of you and it's so great, but I have been loving just every day that goes by and I become more and more comfortable with who I am, who God made me, the limits that he has given me. And I'm finally starting to just accept them. And I think that it's just so wonderful to rest in Jesus and to grow my love for him. And so I am looking forward to however many years the Lord gives me to do that and to see how my knowledge and devotion for him grows and deepens. I think I look back over the course of Risen Motherhood, we've been around for three and a half years. And Emily and I probably started talking about these things about four years ago. Mm -hmm. And I like can't even believe the progress that has been made in my own life and how much my heart has been changed and shaped and yeah. just my biblical knowledge even. And, you know, I can't look back and say, oh man, I went to seminary or, oh man, I, I like did yeah. for a day and now I'm amazing. It was just, <laughs> it was just like these small inputs yeah. and, and a lot of seasons where it felt like nothing was happening. And I look back and I'm like, whoa, like God did grow me and he did change me. And I'm it was just in the mm-hmm. margins. It was in these times when I didn't even know that he was working. And so I cannot imagine what the years ahead might lead towards. And not because I want to be so great and so awesome and this, this amazing like God or whatever. I mean, I want to, I want to be that. I want to be a woman of God, but because like every year I fall more and more in love with Jesus. And so what happens when I add another mm. week, another year? And I think that I can't love him more or my heart will explode, but somehow yeah. kind of like adding babies to your life. You just <laughs> got more room and it's so great. So I just, I'm grateful for God being willing to grow me and I'm looking forward to him continuing to do so. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yes. Yes, ma'am. How about you, Emily? 
Oh man, I just second everything Laura's saying. I want to get older. I mean, I feel like what's so interesting is culture makes older sound like, oh, all your, again, your, your three days are behind you. But I think for the Christian, no, the glory days are still in front yes. of you. They're mm-hmm. still to come. Um, and so I, I'm going to just share a tangible thing about growing older that I'm looking <laughs> forward to. Like, we're just going to get really silly here. I'm looking forward to being an empty nester with my husband and well, maybe we'll have a child still living with us because we have a son with special needs. But even so, whenever my husband and I talk about like our kids growing up and they're like, well, then we'll have Jones. Jones will just go everywhere with us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's so fun uh, to watch like our parents and other people in our churches that are in that season of life. Like I think when you have young children, it's hard to sometimes just have fun and like cultivate yeah. hobbies together. I mean, yeah, occasionally we'll get to go on a walk together or like sneak away to just have dinner. But a lot of times our margin is like, I don't say eaten up, but it's given over to ministry or like, yeah. we just got to rest. Yeah. We just need to have deep conversations. So like, I want to ride a bike with my husband. Yeah. Like I want to go on a bike ride. Um, we've talked about like, you know, buying a Jeep where like the windows all come off and everything. <laughs> <laughs> together with our son in the back seat. Oh, I'm like dying over this picture. I just right want to drive around. That's all I want to do. High goals in life. Big yes. goals. I want to visit my grandkids and I want to go to England and tour hey. the English countryside hey, with legit. my husband. And I don't know like driving your Jeep in England. Yeah, and I want to drive my Jeep. So um <laughs> who knows? Like God may not allow any of those things to happen. But I'll be honest. I daydream about being a grandma. It looks like the best it life does. ever. Grandmas have the best life. <laughs> I mean, my goodness. Like, they, they get to travel. Yep. They, they get they to spoil the kids. No discipline. Oh. No, never. I want to be a grandma. We have a couple nice. grandmas listening, so shout out. Shout out <laughs> we can't wait to be you. <laughs> oh. And I know it's you know, like, oh, I know every season of life holds sorrow, but oh, I'm yeah. sure it looks. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love it. I love it. It's so reminiscent of when Gloria Furman came on and she said, you know what? I can't wait to have gray hair. <laughs> yeah, amen. Me too. So what did you think we were going to say? Hunter? I thought you were going to say that you're excited for this book because it's about to be oh, birthed. Oh, <laughs> that too. Oh, we're probably supposed Definitely. to say that. Don't tell our publishers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, friends, I'm so proud of you. It's such a joy to get to talk to you. I personally have so benefited from this conversation and more than that, from the way that you live your very lives. Thank you for sharing that with us today. It's been a joy to have you on the show. Oh, thanks, Hunter. You guys, I pray that conversation was as challenging, convicting, and encouraging to you as it was for me. If you enjoyed learning from Laura and Emily, I highly recommend checking out the Risen Motherhood book, which you can find along with other helpful stuff from this episode over in the show notes on journeywomenpodcast.com. Also, don't forget, this is a part of a series. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss next week's episode on sexual brokenness with Ellen Dykus of Harvest USA. Another reminder, we would love it if you'd consider supporting the podcast by purchasing a Journey Women tea. Go check them out this week on our website. As always, you guys can connect with us throughout the week over at Journey Women Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. And so you know, this episode was edited by Chris Mann and the Podshaper team. Hey, it's a joy to get to journey alongside you guys. I can't wait to see you here next Monday. Have a great week. It's